0: Welcome to the
1: Demystifying Diversity podcast, where each week we explore topics related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'm Dara Lee Lyons, and I'm speaking to you today from the stolen Lenape lands known as Philadelphia.
2: And I'm Zach James, also occupying stolen Lenape lands.
3: And hello, I'm Azaria Keyes, and I'm also occupying Lenape land. In this Q&A episode of the Demystifying Diversity podcast, we're going to be building off of last week's episode, Moving Beyond Biases, the technological approach.
2: If you haven't already, make sure to listen to that episode. It delves into ways that technology can be used in ways that reinforce and ways that dismantle biases.
3: And I am so glad that we're talking about this subject because there are so many facets to talk about and so many applications for technology that can be positive and negative. But we only get those positive results if we speak about them and learn how to use technology in service of diversity, equity, and
2: inclusion. Absolutely. Azaria, can you talk a bit about why it's so important to include this subject among our episodes this season?
3: Sure. I mean, my answer is going to be short, but I look around us, technology is everywhere and you really can't go anywhere in your day-to-day life, it seems, without encountering some form of technology. And so because the world is diverse, we need to be making sure that we're talking about the ways that technology currently is or isn't serving diverse populations and how we can do better because we can use it for our good. So we just need to make sure it's being used for everyone's good and not just select demographics.
1: I think that's so important that you mentioned that with select demographics because not everyone has the same access to technology and technology also as we spoke about a little in this episode and has been spoken about pretty extensively in research technology holds biases in certain applications and it can reinforce social biases and so I think just it's one of those things that the more we know, the more that we can do to undo some of the damage and mitigate for it, but also the ways that we can correct for some of those human biases and beliefs if we utilize technology in appropriate ways. So like for me, this episode was really exciting. I will say it was also really daunting because I consider myself to be very technologically inept. Zach, as you know, because you're my go-to person to call when I can't figure out how to send a tweet or do something on Instagram or any of that jazz. But it was very powerful talking to some of the people about where technology is currently being used to reinforce biases and then how it can be used to mitigate for them. So what were both of your takeaways from this particular episode?
2: Yeah, I'll kick it off. I I learned a lot from this episode. I I love technology and I I use it personally for good things, but it kind of opened my eyes Depending on what someone's motives are, they could be using it for negative. They could be using it to get a competitive advantage. And of course, they could be using it in ways that are, are very biased, especially when it comes to the workforce. I think the, the one term that I really had no clue about until I heard it in the episode was a femtech. And I'm somewhat familiar. Me and my wife have been on a fertility journey, and she has an app that tells her the best times and when she's ovulating and this, that, and the other. But it's something that she has on her own. It's not provided through her work. And it really blew my mind when it was saying you know, sometimes these are provided through your workplace, and then your employer actually has your information in, in that space, which is feels very intrusive. And I didn't even know that that was a world that women even have to worry about that in that sort of setting, and them knowing when you're going to get pregnant, if they want to hire you or not hire you, or or promote you or not promote you based on that, they can make those decisions if they have that information. So it, it was really eye opening to see the extent of how technology intertwines with our lives and with our workplace.
3: I agree. I'm that person that just wants to bury my head in the sand and wait for this world of technology to just pass. But I know that will never be the case. It's a little daunting to think about everything that technology can do. I mean, I loved how Munir opened the episode. He said, the tech isn't biased, the people using it are. And it takes me back to that one movie on Netflix, a while back that got a lot of buzz. We'll put it in the show notes. It was one of the first Netflix films to really look into how technology and AI specifically can be biased. And it talked about the fact that the tech itself, people don't stop to think that that's biased, but the people coding it are often singular demographics. And so if you're coding something based on your personal experiences, but your personal experiences are representative of only a small portion of the population, or maybe it's the majority of the population, whatever it might be, it's still not including others who will later be using that technology. And we've seen how that can fail. So I loved how he opened the episode there. And then, yeah, Zach, I agree. The femtech (laughs) technology is actually terrifying to think about because I feel like our society already polices women's bodies so much. And that just feels like another way for another entity to be policing women and their bodies. Like, I don't need my job to know anything that's going on with me personally in that sense. But then, on the flip side of it, I guess I understand, like, when you're talking about the privacy and why companies want to start using more technology around privacy matters and whatnot. It is helpful to have data and it's helpful to be able to track things and it's helpful to be able to understand the ROI on something, but where we draw the line when it starts to invade on people's privacy is something that I feel like that line just keeps moving and that's concerning. But I guess that's just our life. And I'm not really sure there's a solution outside of legislation and policy change. But even then it just feels like technology is everywhere. (laughs) So again, it's very daunting. What about you, Darylise? What were your takeaways?
1: I think it's coded bias, right? Is the Netflix documentary? So we'll put a link to that in the show notes. And also there's The Social Dilemma, which I've never seen. I don't know if either of you have seen. I'm afraid to watch it because I think it's going to change my life. and I
3: It's scary.
1: Yeah, it's really <laughs> scary. So we'll put links to both of those in the show notes, Coded Bias and The Social Dilemma. And I think for me, the biggest takeaway was something Munir said, but he talked about making decisions from his gut, from his intuition. And I think that for me, I'm a person who tries to be intensely logical and figure everything out in advance and know all the right answers. And I think I have to be careful to use technology in support of my humanity, not as an override or a failsafe or a way to be so efficient that I don't make time for the things and the people that matter. So I got a lot out of this episode and I think my primary takeaway was the fact that technology is there for humans, not the other way around. I want to be better at technology, but I also want to have the technology in my life supportive of my values and supportive of greater equity and inclusion. I think this gave me a lot to think about. A specific thing that stood out to me was Soheel talking about using race in calculations and then removing it as part of the decision-making process. And that seemed like a really tangible thing that could be done to mitigate for bias. And I'm curious for either of you or both of you, did you emerge with some tangible like, oh, yeah, these things can be done to mitigate some of the impacts of technology or to use technology to remove human bias? Did you all have any big aha moments?
2: I can't really call it as an aha moment. It was something that got pointed out, which has been at the forefront of my mind for years because of how much I work in the content space. And that was, I think it was Alexi was talking about when you're searching images and you Google search boss and you get predominantly white males. If you search secretary, you're predominantly getting females. And me being in the content space, creating graphics and videos, anytime I want to create something that has ethnicity involved, I have to type black boss or black female this. And I think the impact that that has, especially on youth after a while, we always talk about representation and being able to see yourself, everything from cartoons to movies and this, that, and the other. Well, the internet and technology is the same. You need to see that that wealth of diversity off the bat. And we really don't have that now. So if there was a way to help change that aspect of technology, I want to be able to search boss and let the technology give me a wide rainbow of different types of people and images. Maybe I am looking for a white male and, and then I can go and use that qualifier, but that qualifier is really never required. It's required if you want to find someone else But if you want to find a white male in any of those things, usually you just search it and and that's what comes up uh, organically. So I would love if that was something that we could change technology to better showcase a variety of of ethnicities and, and different folks when you're searching terms, especially terms that might be considered more powerful or have a little more prestige. When I search thug or criminal, I'm typically getting black folks' faces popping up on those Google searches. So that's one area of technology bias that I wish we could alter.
3: Yeah, that's that's a great point, Zach. I remember being, I don't know what age I was, but I was younger and I was in school and some news alert popped up about how that's the case for if you search, forgot if it was like black woman or something like that, but everyone at school was like, yeah, just search it and see what comes up. And everything that came up was like so disappointing because it was the most negative depiction of stereotypes. So definitely can understand that side of it. I guess something that stood out to me was Emma BF had said that we need to hire more diverse leaders in tech. And that just to me sounds like such an easy solution. But I guess maybe it's not because it's not necessarily being done on a broad scale. I think that back to the initial point that I had made, which is that the people behind this technology who are coding, the coding that they're doing is happening based off of their personal experiences. So if you're a white male, You have specific personal experiences that maybe a Latina woman would not have, right? She would have something different. And so I think not only do we need more diversity behind the coding, but that ultimately starts with the leadership. Who is deciding who gets hired to code? Who gets hired to be on these teams? Well, that's leadership. And so if the leadership is not diverse, that's not to say that white leaders don't hire individuals from diverse demographics. But I think that when you're a leader in general, sure, you follow a certain style of leadership. And part of that is built off of your personal experiences as an individual that led you to become that leader. And so you would hope that more diversity in leadership in tech would ultimately result in more diversity in those roles that are responsible for coding. And so it seems so simple of a solution, and in my mind it is, but I understand that I don't want to simplify it to the point where I ignore that it's still not happening as much as it should. And I think that that is a very tangible Solution to a lot of the issues that we're hearing around bias in tech. So, seems simple, but yeah, it's not happening as much as I would like to see it because certainly, like me being from Seattle, Washington, big tech is huge out there Amazon, Google, you name it, they're out there. And I think that Seattle specifically, you are seeing some more efforts around diversity in the tech space. But how much of that is diversity in leadership? I can't say I'm seeing a ton of that. I do know like a lot of college grads are getting into tech and Seattle, a lot of the tech spaces out there, they'll hire and recruit from HBCUs, which is great. But again, what does your leadership look like? And that's a space that still feels like it's failing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And one thing that I wanted to mention too about bias in tech and with coding, et cetera, Zach and I, we do a DEI training and one of the exercises that we'll sometimes have people do in this particular DEI training centered around bias is we'll show images on a screen and we'll have people write down just for their own reflection, their reactions to those images. And people's reactions to the same image are very different based on what that person may have been through, the things that they've faced, the people they know, the friendships they have. And that's without power and agency behind it. But if you think about in leadership, power and agency and decision-making goes behind people's biases in leadership, and it can't not. It determines who they promote, how they react to bad news from someone. If you have a bias against a certain group of people and someone from that demographic comes in and tells you bad news, you're probably going to react differently to that than if you tend to have positive assumptions about a particular person or group of people and someone from that demographic comes in and speaks to you. So it really is, it needs to be at all levels of an organization having different representation. And then that representation then will be filtered through the technology, because it can't not, right? Because people notice what is missing when they're impacted. So this subject really has far-reaching ramifications. These past few years have really illuminated how important it is to care for our health. The place where I go for all my health and wellness supplements is Vita Supreme. Vita Supreme uses all organic ingredients and has a wide range of supplement options that can help with immune support, heart health, energy, mental health, pain relief, sleep, anti aging, digestion, diabetes, and more. Their products have helped me reduce joint pain and increase vibrancy. And if you read their online testimonials, you'll find glowing endorsements from their customers who, at every age and stage of life are feeling better than ever. Vita Supreme believes that health radiates from the inside out, and I can tell you from personal experience that their supplements have made a positive difference in my life. To receive 10% off your first order, go to vitasupreme.com pages diversity. Your discount will be applied at checkout. There's no code required. Also, as a special offer with your first order, you can receive a free 15-minute coaching session with one of their wellness experts to find out more about what you can do to improve your health and your habits. Just send your name and preferred contact information to support at vitasupreme.com. Once again, to get 10% off your first order, go to Vitasupreme.com/slash pages slash diversity. And to receive your free coaching session, email support at Vitasupreme.com and tell them the demystifying diversity podcast sent you. Through innovative and dynamic educational initiatives, Temple University's Fox School of Business provides students with real-world, local, and global business opportunities. At the Fox School of Business, you can choose from a wide range of undergraduate, graduate, certificate, and continuing educational programs. Whatever your academic and professional path, you'll learn practical strategies for workplace success at a university that is committed to encouraging and respecting diversity in all forms and perspectives. The Fox School of Business, which includes the Center for Ethics, Diversity, and Workplace Culture, has built an inclusive, welcoming environment where everyone is emboldened to reach their full potential. So if you want to be in a learning environment that will empower you to cultivate your capacity for empathy and profitability, go to fox.temple.edu DDP for more on how you can learn from world-class DEI-focused faculty and become an inclusive leader in the workplace. So if you want to be in a learning environment that will empower you to cultivate your capacity for empathy and profitability, go to fox.temple.edu/ddp for more on how you can learn from world-class DEI focused faculty and become an inclusive leader in the workforce with options for students and professionals at every stage of life including undergraduate, graduate, certificate and continuing educational programs. The Fox School of Business has something just right for you. So make sure to check out fox.temple.edu/ddp to learn more.
2: Now, Daryl, was there anything that didn't make it into this episode that you wish you could include?
1: For me, I interviewed a lot of people who are very positive and optimistic about technology and to Azaria's point, it's not going anywhere. So I think we have to learn to deal with it. But I would have liked to interview maybe a few people who are living off the grid and have taken the opposite approach to technology because somewhere deep inside of me, I have a curmudgeon who's like, I don't want to do this. And and I think there are certain things with technology that I myself have been very resistant to that I think have made my life better. But also, I wonder if, yeah, I just think I might have wanted to represent different perspectives on the issue of technology and people who maybe have really disavowed the use of technology, although I'm not sure how effective That would be in a podcast where we're emphasizing work, because right now it seems like in every industry, technology is part of the package. So yeah, that's something I would have wanted to explore a little more. What about you, Azaria?
3: Because we're focusing on workplace culture, and aside from this, I'm always very fascinated about how bias in technology impacts the medical field, specifically for patients with darker complexion skin who go to get a pump of hand sanitizer and it doesn't read their skin tone so they don't get hand sanitizer. Or even more serious, there were reports about patients with darker complexion skin having the heart rate monitor put on their finger and it wasn't reading it accurately. So you you were getting these false results. And I'm really interested around that topic because I think, one, obviously there are serious life-impacting outcomes that are a result of that bias. But also, what is the trust relationship with specifically Black communities who are knowing that this is happening with AI and technology? They know that this is happening. They're they're hearing these reports. How does that disrupt the trust they might have in our society that is more and more relying on technology, right? So now I'm supposed to trust that technology across the board is going to serve me as a consumer of it. And I'm curious how that impacts the trust that you see with different communities who are expected to just go into the workplace and rely on technology or go to the doctor's office and trust that this technology being used on me isn't going to be biased towards the color of my skin. That is something that's really fascinating to me. So I don't necessarily think it was left out of this episode because we are focusing specifically on the workplace. But I do think there are some overlapping themes there that that trust piece in these communities that are being left out because of the bias in tech, what trust is being broken there and how is that impacting how people are expected to show up in the workplace when the workplace is really moving towards a more technologically advanced environment. So that's just something that I think about often, even outside of this episode. And it's something that I'm probably going to continue to have questions about because it's fascinating.
1: Yeah, I know specifically this season, we focused on the legal profession, but you raised the issue of technology and medicine. But I think just the medical profession in general, there is so much research out there that shows that individuals, underrepresented minorities, specifically black and brown folks, their pain is treated differently by medical professionals, infant mortality rates, and the pregnancy mortality rates of women are higher within Black communities. There's been so much documented historical records of things like Henrietta Lacks and Tuskegee. So I think maybe for a future season or a future episode, exploring the intersection of medicine and bias might be, I don't know, just a really powerful topic to talk about because I think the impacts of bias as it pertains to medicine, are far-reaching. And yes, they do relate to technology, but then to your earlier points, both of you, how does that technology then get implemented by people? How do people influence the technology? Yeah, there's a lot of different impacts of medicine. And one of the people who I interviewed who I really loved what she had to say was Tomar Pearson-Brown, who in her role, she holds a position- That is part of a medical legal partnership out of Pitt. And she talks a lot about how different people are treated differently by the medical community and by the legal community and the importance of really educating around those things and supporting people
2: around those. So,
1: yeah, I love that you brought that up.
2: Hey, listeners, Zach here. Darylis and I are so grateful you've tuned in to season three of the Demystifying Diversity Podcast. You probably know by now that we've partnered with Temple University's Fox School of Business to bring you this special season dedicated to DEI in the workplace. With that in mind, we ask that you send us your work-related DEI questions by calling 844-888-8148, just leave a message with your question, or send us a note through our website, www.DemystifyingDiversityPodcast.com. As always, we'll be joined by some amazing guest experts and thought leaders who can also weigh in on whatever questions you have. Again, the number is 844-888-8148 or message us through our website, DemystifyingDiversityPodcast.com. Who knows, your voice or your question may just make it into one of our Q&A episodes. Happy listening. I think
1: that now would be a great time to move into our expert interview section of the Q&A episode. In this interview, I had the opportunity to speak with Liz Brown. Liz is a nationally recognized expert on career choice and reinvention. She's the author of the Amazon bestseller Life After Law, Finding Work You Love with the JD You Have, and she's an assistant professor of business law at Bentley. Liz has practiced law in San Francisco, London, and Boston. She's advised senior executives at Fortune 500 companies on legal strategies, and she's managed multi-million dollar cases as a litigation partner from beginning to end. And one of her major interests these days is looking at technology bias and femtech. So we'll play the clip of my interview with Liz, and then the three of us will come back and discuss it. By diversity, making work is safe for you and me, shoulder to shoulder we embark, invite the light to send the dark, let's embrace one another. Single colleagues, working mothers, people of all points of you. can we see each other through? So, Liz, you have. An interesting career history. And I'm so curious why you do the work that you do and what's led you to where you are today professionally.
0: Well, I have always been interested in innovation and in the interesting new ways in which people see the world and process the world. I'm not an engineer. I actually studied history and literature in college. But in the time that I was a lawyer, I was drawn to inventions and I spent a lot of my time practicing law, working with people who had gotten patents and companies that were trying to protect their intellectual property and their inventions. And I loved working with people who were on the cutting edge of technology in all different fields. When I started teaching, I wanted to explore the limitations of technology or really the limitations of law in helping us get the most out of technology. So a lot of what I do now as a legal scholar and as a teacher is to focus on where law and society and technology all come together and how we can give innovation the space that it needs while protecting people from the unwanted negative consequences of it.
1: And so how does this work? Because I imagine, you know, you spend a lot of time looking at the potentiality of humanity and also the limits of humanity and the law and the the potentiality of technology and the limits of technology. I'm so curious how your work has changed you, impacted you, how it inspires or challenges you. Like, tell me about some of the impact of it.
0: Well, I really like... Finding that a negative trait can have a positive outcome. And for me, one of my salient features has always been that I worry too much. It made me a good lawyer and it makes me a really unhappy person (laughs) a lot of the time to worry as much as I do. But one of the great things about academic scholarship for me, about legal scholarship for me, is that worrying can have some positive consequences. So when I think about a technology like femtech and i think what could possibly go wrong instead of just turning that over at 2 a.m. with no positive result what i can do instead is think right what could go wrong and then think about potential solutions to what could go wrong so when i think about privacy in the workplace instead of just thinking oh it's so bad that our employers will be able to get to see this broad range of things that we do or things that we think about, I think, well, all right, what can the legal system do to step in and offer some protections? And it's really gratifying when it turns out that what I've been thinking about has some very immediate real-world positive impacts. For example, when Roe versus Wade was overturned and states got the ability— To pass more restrictive abortion legislation, a lot of people started thinking about some of the things that I had been writing about regarding femtech and online privacy. And it was great to be able to contribute to that discussion.
1: I'm so glad that you brought up this idea of something that has negative ramifications also having positive ramifications, and this idea of being able to really foresee. Issues and be in contribution. And I'm so curious, like, what if someone's wrong is someone else's right? And I guess maybe just to expand on what I mean by that, I think there are some employers who might think that being able to monitor their employees in a certain way is a win for them. And some employees who might feel invaded by that. Or conversely, some employees who might feel like, you know what, yeah, it's really great to have my employer have this data and this information about me because then I don't have to worry about disclosure. But then the employer feels like a certain level of responsibility or whatever. So I'm not weighing in on what is right or wrong, but I'm curious what happens in situations where one person's win feels like another person's
0: loss. That's a great question. And that's the heart of privacy legislation. That's what we are talking about when we talk about privacy and its consequences there's always going to be an up and a down, right? Employers have really great reasons for monitoring what their employees do a lot of the time. There are legitimate, valuable, important uses of monitoring technology. For example, if an employer wants to make sure that its trade secrets are being protected and not being discussed, or if an employer is trying to keep its workforce safe from harassment or bullying, then monitoring can have a place. We just have to look out for how we delimit that, how we curb that monitoring so it doesn't become too negative from the employee's point of view. And all that balancing of what does the employer want versus what does the employee want is the art of sensible Legal approaches to online privacy,
1: I was so struck by, too, the fact that privacy is different for people of different identities and in different workspaces, but also some of the ways in which technology filters information or creates opportunities or perhaps doesn't create opportunities can really be tied to identity and tied to who we are and what we've experienced in the world. And so I'm curious, How does the law differentiate between issues of privacy for everyone and then issues that might impact people of certain identities disproportionately?
0: The law does not do a great job of accounting for people's differences. There are boxes. There are boxes that don't fit people well. There are classes that the law provides, the U.S. legal system provides anyway, I should say. For example... The law will say, all right, there are certain things that women have to deal with that men don't have to deal with, but there isn't a box really for trans people or asexual people or a gender people or queer people. They have to fit in with pre-existing categories that a lot of the time were created in 1964 and the Civil Rights Act. And Those boxes, race, religion, gender, national origin, also don't really account for intersectionality. They don't account for how a woman of color's experience is different from a white woman's experience. They don't account for age at all. And even when they do, for example, there's a law of age discrimination, the federal law on age discrimination only protects people who are 40 and older. It's often really unsatisfactory. So I would not say that the legal system deals with differences in a way that we in our time would want to perpetuate.
1: You're doing a beautiful job of pointing to a lot of the complexities, the intricacies, the challenges, the fact that what might be effective for one person is not effective for another, et cetera. But is there something that globally or universally when it comes to technology bias, technology privacy, that people could do to bring about greater social and workplace change? Is there one particular thing that people should be doing, or is that not even a valid question?
0: I don't think there's one single approach that is going to solve this larger problem of privacy on a global level. And that's partly because conceptions of privacy and what kind of privacy people are entitled to differs from place to place. It's different between Europe and the United States, for example. And I would say though, that I think we are moving in the wrong direction when we develop technology that evaluates people according to a certain standard of what is effective or what is right. And so we're seeing now a lot of Microsoft Office products, for example, PowerPoint will evaluate how well you present or how well you do in a meeting and how well you interact with other people. And I think the question we should be asking is, according to whom, whose standards are we using when we say this person is an effective communicator? Because using a single standard for everybody really runs the risk of flattening society and harming diversity and reducing diversity. I love that you use that
1: example. In one of our episodes this season, I interviewed an expert on communication style differences. And we spoke about how there are slow communicators and Fast communicators, and you might be like, Well, okay, what's how is that an issue? But there's different perceptions, right? That if someone is a person who is more thoughtful and deliberate, someone who maybe is quicker, more rapid, more instant gratification, might perceive that person to be less intelligent than they actually are or might step over that person. However, if someone is a immediate communicator like I am, I might not be as good at listening. I might make people feel bulldozed over. There's a way that in certain contexts, my communication style is highly effective and gets results. But in other contexts, it might be really alienating. For people. And so I think, yeah, like who is evaluating, but also this recognition that nothing is inherently better. It's all contextual. And some of the ways that we're looking to make people uniform might actually be alienating large segments of society and having a the opposite effect of what's intended.
0: I couldn't agree more. When we have standards that portray a particular type of communication style as being better or worse then we adopt a model that narrows our vision of success. And we have more singular models of who is a good presenter, who is a good communicator, instead of exposing us to different kinds of communication, to different styles, to more models of success. The example I think about all the time when I when I think about this is In the UK, I'm a huge Anglophile, so I think about the UK a lot. To be a presenter on the BBC, the National News Network, you used to need to have a certain kind of upper-crest accent. And if you didn't speak like a traditional BBC presenter, there was no way you were going to get on the news. Now, it's not that way at all. Well, I'm not going to say that the BBC is as diverse as it should be. I, I would never say that. But I will say that if you watch the VVC or listen to the VVC now, you hear a much broader range of voices, you see a broader range of faces, and I think that's a great thing. I think it's a great
1: thing, too. I'm curious, too, if the medium impacts our expectations for how communication is supposed to happen or adds to or reduces bias. And so what I mean by that is my perception is that technology has led to more instant gratification expectations, right? I send an email, 15 minutes later, I'm looking for a response. I send a text message, five minutes later, I'm looking for a response. And there's a way that, you know, I remember growing up, you would call someone on the phone, you would leave them a message or even sending an email. It, would, it was in the days of dial up. So it might take a day or two to hear back from someone. And it, there wasn't the expectation of immediacy. And I think technology has made us so much more efficient. But I also wonder if some of the piece of it has impacted our expectations of people and then also how that plays into privacy.
0: It's so interesting that the expectations of how quickly people will respond to you differs from place to place. I am based in Boston. I teach at Bentley University. And being a more or less lifelong New Englander, I expect people to talk fast. I expect people to respond quickly. And being a former big law lawyer, I also don't mind or, and I'm not surprised when people email me at two in the morning. For the last couple of months, I've been working in France where they do not have this expectation and people apologize if they're sending you an email in the evening or on the weekend and explicitly saying, don't feel obligated to respond right away. Because I think in France, there is a greater cultural appreciation of family privacy, of personal time, of downtime. And that doesn't seem to exist as much anymore in the workplaces I've been in, in the United States, although academia is so much better about that than than law practices.
1: I'm curious. Because you've had this experience of it being different. How do you expect that to impact when you return to Boston and that environment?
0: I hope it will allow me to be more protective of my own family time, of my own free time, of my weekends and my evenings. I hope that having spent some time in Europe, I will be able to keep giving myself permission to wait a day to respond to emails that aren't urgent and to take the time to enjoy sort of the smaller things and maintain a greater separation between my work and my life, even though I think for me and really for most people, that's increasingly difficult. And that's one of the things that we owe to technology is it follows us around everywhere.
1: Right. And this idea of separation, I think, really goes back to access and information as well, which I know we talked about in your initial interview, like how much access should an employer have to their employee and how does that access hinder the employee-employer relationship and then how does it support it?
0: The question of where your workplace ends is a really tricky one. And the... Legal scholar I admire so much, and my friend Leora Eisenstadt has written about this question of the erosion of the, the work home divide so brilliantly. It's very difficult to know where to draw that line. And of course, the pandemic made it so much harder for us to draw that line. I'm talking to you right now from a living room, right? So it's hard to know where to draw that line, which means I think for most people, they have to take the initiative and say, here's when I'm working, here's when I'm not working. And that may or may not fit in with their workplace culture. So managers have a responsibility to set expectations and to set tones and employees to the extent that they can and they feel comfortable and it's safe for them to do so, need to figure out where their boundaries are and establish those with their employers. And once they do that, conceptually, for example, I'm not going to respond to your email if it comes in after 6pm or something like that. I'm not going to respond at all on Saturdays. It's your responsibility as a worker to convey that to your employer so that everybody is on the same page.
1: I'm curious how much of a difference it makes for people whose work devices and home devices are the same versus people who Have different devices, whether it be a cell phone or a computer or whatever, for personal use versus professional use? And if that challenges or changes the dynamic in terms of privacy and expectations and work life balance?
0: From a privacy perspective and a work life balance perspective, the two things to think about are your devices and your network. So even if you're using a personal cell phone, if you're using it on your employer's network, the employer is likely to be able to see a lot more than if you're just using your personal cell phone at home on your own network. So I think that trips a lot of people up. They think they're using their own device, and they are, but they're using somebody else's bandwidth. So that's something to think about as well.
1: Could you give an example of a case, an instance of whether it be real or hypothetical, where a person's use of their workplace bandwidth might be problematic and how that could be problematic for them?
0: Sure. Let's say that you are using your cell phone and you're using your cell phone at work to take a personal call. You're using your cell phone on an employer's bandwidth. So your employer has provided access to the network for you in exchange for that. You give up some privacy in your call, but also in your texts and your emails. So your employer's ability to see what you write, to catch keywords from what you write, for example, to monitor what you are communicating extends not only to the devices that they're giving you, laptop and so forth. But to a cell phone that you might have bought yourself, but you're using it on your boss's Wi-Fi. So what wow. you think of as being private isn't necessarily private, depending on where you use the device and which device you're using.
1: That is both fascinating and frightening for me. I don't know how it is for you, but I'm like, that's... I really appreciate you sharing about that because I think it'll get a lot of people thinking perhaps more about not just how they want to communicate, but where they want to communicate and with whom and under what circumstances.
0: And practically speaking, it's very difficult for people to make that choice sometimes because if you're at work all day long and you need to talk to your partner or you need to talk to your best friend, it's not always practical to wait until you're back home. So I recognize that a lot of what we're talking about is not available for all practical purposes for a lot of people. And that's troubling. That, that troubles me. And I think that the way we deal with that is by increasing our awareness of it.
1: I feel like this would be a really good time, speaking of building awareness, to shift into some of the listener questions, because there's a lot that they ask about that I think would be really useful for listeners to build their awareness. And I can't wait to hear your answers. Liz, the first question I want to start with is a question, we've been talking a lot about how employees handle their data within an organization, but this question has to do with what employees do when they feel uncomfortable about the way that an organization is using consumer data. So I'm just going to read this question from an anonymous listener. If I work for a company and I am uncomfortable with the way we are beginning to use customer data, what should I do? Is there anything I can do if I have signed an NDA?
0: This is a great question. And the NDA, the non-disclosure agreement, usually provides that the employee can't talk to people outside of the organization about what is happening inside the organization it's worth double checking what the NDA actually says. But in that situation, my first suggestion would be to talk to the general counsel or GC of that company and find out what is being done to protect consumer data. So in the United States, the extent to which consumers data is kept private or protected is changing all the time, because we don't have a federal consumer privacy law now, but we may have one within the next year or two. In fact, it looks increasingly likely that we will have one in the next year or two. At the moment, though, consumer data is primarily protected by state laws. So a lot will depend on the state in which you're working. And It is very much part of the company's general counsel's job to know what laws apply to protecting that data. So the law is your friend here. It's just a matter of how comfortable are you figuring out what the laws are that apply to your company in your state before you have that conversation.
1: And I'm curious, I mean, this is perhaps less of an academic question than just an emotional question. Or, like, I always think about retribution and ramifications. How does a person ask that question in a way that does not feel threatening to the
0: organization? The right way to bring this up is in the context of protecting the company. The company would be at risk if the company were violating any laws relating to the protection of consumer data. So the right way to bring this up is to frame it in terms of being interested in making sure that the company is not running afoul of any risks that might be out there. So, for example, the listener could say, hey, you know, it looks like we're doing X, Y, and Z with this consumer data. I've been reading about these laws that apply in our state that have to do with this kind of consumer data, I just want to make sure that the company is okay and the company isn't taking any unnecessary risks, given that this law might apply to us. Can we talk about this a little bit further?
1: I love that. But I'm like, that was so great. That's brilliant.
0: (laughs) Thank you. It is all about protecting the enterprise. Of course, we're not actually concerned with the consumers. So if you frame it in that way, of course, we are extremely concerned with the consumers but from the company's point of
1: view. Thank you for that answer. Thank you for the question. Our next question, it's interesting, right? Because you just talked about once you're in the company, how to both honor our own personal values about data and privacy, and also how to have constructive conversations where one is not putting oneself at risk. But this next question from Edwin in Oakland, California happens even before a person gets their foot in the door. So Edwin writes, the episode spoke into the uses of technology in screening job applications. Can you speak more into the effects that needing to understand how to use technology or to have technical skills further creates inequality among workers in the same workspace? Like how impactful is the gap between those that can do and those that cannot do?
0: I think there's always been a gap between those that can do and those cannot do. And just what constitutes doing has changed. So for my mother's generation of women, it was how fast could you type? And for my child, it's going to be partly how well do you code? And so the skills that you need to have to be successful in the workplace are gonna change constantly. But people's ability to master those skills, people's opportunity to get the chance to master those skills is going to have an impact on their ability to succeed in the workplace. And different kinds of workplaces will have different initial requirements. So it's absolutely true that there are going to be separations. There are going to be filters of technology sorting out people who can do things versus people who can't do things. That doesn't trouble me when the technology is something that everybody can learn and there is equal opportunity and equal access to that technology, to learning the things that you need to be successful. Where I get more concerned is when the standards for success are not equally open to everybody or treat people differently, not according to what they know how to do, but instead of according to who they are.
1: Right. And I think that the fact that Edwin mentioned the uses of technology in screening job applications, it bars people even from entering into the space to be able to figure out whether or not competency in a certain area is accessible or already existing.
0: Yeah. And that is is very troubling. We should be broadening access to the technology that will allow people to create CVs, that will allow people to develop the kind of experience they can put on their CVs and increasing awareness of the fact that on your CVs should be some buzzwords, some keywords, some things that will help get your CV through the artificial intelligence filters that the process job applications.
1: It's interesting because technology is developed by people, but I also think that What is measured is so subjective. And so what I have found is that I remember from my days in HR, someone might come across or even online dating, right? You read a profile or you read a job application and it's like, oh, wow, this is so intriguing. This person is so great. And then you meet them in person and whatever that X factor that is needed just doesn't seem to be there versus I believe the opposite is true as well, where someone who might not come across quote unquote, like, as well on paper, might in person, have so many dynamic skills that really help an organization. And so I think often what is measured, the subjectivity of that might do damage to an organization as well as to individuals.
0: It's interesting because I think that part of the goal of developing technology that sorts and evaluates applications is to remove some level of subjectivity. And the stated reason for that is that it's intended to remove bias. It's intended to remove prejudice. It's intended to treat people more equally and to remove that element of, oh, I just get this person because he reminds me of my fraternity brother or whatever. And that's a, that's a noble goal, but we have to look very carefully at what the standards are that we use for making those decisions. Because the factors that humans develop in these sorting mechanisms can have serious biases we see from the people who talk about mortgage applications and talk about loan applications, as well as job applications. So while we're trying to be more objective, we have to be really careful about how we do that.
1: Before I ask you our last write-in question, let's transition over to the call-in question.
0: I experience technology
1: bias as starting at a young age. Many of the video games my son likes to play require subscriptions or continual purchases to be played. Can you speak into the gap this creates for children and families who can and cannot afford games like this?
0: The fact that some families can afford certain toys and games has always been a problem. Social inequality has always been a problem. It becomes more of a lifelong problem when those toys and games help kids develop the skills that they will need to be successful in the workplace. So when a video game teaches something or exposes the kid who's playing it to something that's going to be useful later on in their career, who can afford that game becomes a much more consequential question than who can afford a particular authentic Barbie doll versus a fake Barbie doll. So I think the caller has asked a great question when we think about the slide from video games to the workplace which is really, it's not that far anymore. Right.
1: And in some ways, there are certain industries where proximity to gaming and all that that entails is actually a huge asset. And I'm not just talking about the gaming industry, et cetera, but like a lot of startups, a lot of tech-based industries, the more familiar someone is with gaming, it's almost like learning a language early. So even if someone does get access to those same things later on, their aptitude might not be what it Would be if they learned young.
0: That's especially true when you think about gamification as a behavior modifying tool that some companies use or some advertisers use. You can't create gamification if you're not familiar with the games to begin with.
1: So much of this is going to get me thinking far beyond this episode, (laughs) like, and already has. I mean, I, yeah, I think about our conversation about femtech specifically and just how that has changed my understanding of my own relationship to my body and relationship to technology in the world but I sometimes have a tendency to want to vilify these tools and technology as a tool. And I think Glenn asks a really beautiful question. This is a write-in question courtesy of Glenn from Los Angeles who writes, in recent years, a lot of mistrust has been created within the U.S. media around technology and its advances. What are the benefits and dangers of demonizing technological advances within our society?
0: This is a great question. And I will start by saying that there are no advantages to demonizing technology at all. There are advantages to understanding how technology works. And I think a lot of the discussion that has happened in the last couple of years has to do with the fact that companies are not required in the United States to be transparent about what they do with the information they collect and what information they collect to begin with, for example. So the more we know, the more informed decisions we can make as consumers and as employees. We absolutely should not be demonizing the technology that makes our life so much more advanced, so different. At the same time, we should be mindful not to let the technology run us, which affects things like how often do you answer your email? How quickly do you respond to your email? how much of a divide can you create between your work life and your personal life? So it's important to let the technology be and at the same time, provide as much information to people as we possibly can to give them the maximum amount of choice and agency into how they use that technology.
1: I recognize that different people might have different access to different levels of information and different organizations are more or less disclosing than others. But where's a place that people can start to learn more about their rights as it relates to technology, their privacy, and then how to have a more empowered relationship with technology so that it serves them rather than exposing their vulnerabilities?
0: Well, I think listening to podcasts like this one is a great way to get some information about what's happening out there with your data and how it's being used. You're going to see a lot in the news in the next couple of years about federal privacy laws. And I would take a look at those stories because Congress is going to be developing the first nationwide consumer data privacy laws. That's going to be a really interesting discussion. Right now, the privacy that people have depends a lot on the state in which they live, which may remind you of abortion laws, but it's very much the same concept. States can make laws unless the federal government gives them a limit. And right now there's no federal limit or standard on data privacy nationwide.
1: That is great. People can learn more do we as consumers, as employees, how do we lend our voices to the conversation in ways that have an impact?
0: Vote. Vote for people who protect your personal interests. That is the number one most important thing that people can do. It may be a funny thing to say now that the midterms are over, but it is always so important. To remember that the most impactful thing that you can possibly do to protect your rights is to. Research candidates, even just a little bit, and go out and vote for the people who are going to pass the laws that are going to treat data the way you would like it to be treated.
1: Thank you so much. Is there anything, Liz, that I haven't asked you about that you would want to share?
0: I would just say that I think that there are three ways that people can go about protecting their data at work and as consumers. The first is to ask how your data is being used. And if you're in a workplace situation, the way to do that is to really just talk with your employer, talk with human resources. And if you don't get a good answer from human resources, you can go to the general counsel's office if you have one in your workplace or to IT and just ask, how are we being monitored? Your employer should be able to let you know. They're probably not legally required to let you know yet, but again, watch the space for developing legal protections for employees and consumers. So the first thing to do is ask. The second thing that people can do is limit what searches they run on devices that they have from work and that they use on their workplace's bandwidth or Wi-Fi. If you've got to run a search, can you run it at home? If you're going to search for something that has personal meaning to you, something maybe about your reproductive choices or something that you don't necessarily want your boss to know about? Is that something that you can do when you're back home on your own laptop, on your own Wi-Fi? And can you think about, as a third measure, choose which search engines you use? So for example, you're going to be tracked a lot more using certain search engines rather than other search engines. So I myself have largely stopped using Google, especially when I'm at work and I use search engines like DuckDuckGo or Quant, Q-W-A-N-T. DuckDuckGo is really fun because it has a little fire icon. And anytime you click on the fire icon, it just gets rid of your search history in a very satisfying way. These are three steps that you can take. To protect your privacy more in the face of growing technology. I asked you
1: why you do this work and what's inspiring to it about you, but I'm curious if someone's listening to this and they're like, well, I've got nothing to hide and like, you know, it's all is fine. Why should people be interested and invested in either protecting their privacy or at least knowing who has access to their information?
0: Knowing more about your privacy gives you more choice. If you've got nothing to hide, good for you. You go, girl. Just let it all hang out. That's fantastic. I don't know very many people who are like that, but there's certainly nothing wrong with it. I would think about it this way. Whatever you are writing at work is potentially visible to your managers and your bosses. So it used to be 10 years ago that people didn't think about social media very much and people would just write whatever they wanted or post whatever they wanted and not really think too much about how that might come back to bite them. And then slowly people started getting more savvy about the fact that if you post something on Facebook or on WhatsApp or even on Snapchat, it can get stored and called up by a search of your name or a search of your identity when you're applying for a job or applying to a school or something like that. And people have gotten a lot more sophisticated about how they use social media and the concept of privacy. I just really like people to develop that same savvy about the searches that they run and the apps that they use in the workplace and develop that same greater awareness that all these things can be more visible. So just keeping that in mind, I think is really helpful. I'm thinking
1: too that the you of today is not necessarily the you of 10 years from now. And I think about myself and some of the choices that I made in my 20s that at the time I was very confident in those choices. And I am so glad That they were not captured on camera or that it didn't go viral because I think there might be ramifications for me today that I won't have to deal with because I did not grow up in a time when everything was captured on social media and where there weren't certain expectations of privacy.
0: Yeah, I think anyone who's ever been in their 20s is glad for whatever privacy they can hold on to for what they did during that time.
1: Liz, this has been wonderful. If people are listening to this and feel like they want to learn more about you or your work or get in touch, how can they contact you, read things that you've written? How do they learn more?
0: Well, they can always, of course, contact me at my university address, which is ebrown1 at Bentley.edu. If you want to talk about any of my research or you want to read it, if you want to discuss anything with me, I'd love to hear from listeners And for those listeners out there who want to know more about the side of my work that has to do with counseling lawyers, I help lawyers leave their unhappy jobs. When law becomes something that people don't want to do anymore, I help counsel people out of it. And so I have a new book out with Amy Impelizari called How to Leave the Law that came out in the fall of 2022. And you can find that on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and Target. And I want to ask a question. I did not
1: know about that book and I'm so excited and I'm so excited to share it with our listeners. It's interesting, right? Because we've been talking a lot about privacy and I always think about the issue of permissions. And I'm so curious, I would guess that a lot of people who are looking to leave the law might have to give themselves permission to do something new after having worked really hard to attain a certain level of quote unquote success, right? Or achievement. And so I'm just curious if you would want to share anything about that work with our listeners.
0: Oh, yeah. The question of identity and success are big ones for lawyers. A lot of people go into law because it looks really glamorous on suits and damages and other TV shows. And it is incredibly high paying and all encompassing. And so it becomes very, very difficult for a lot of lawyers to let go of the identity that they've created for themselves as. A successful person, a wealthy person, somebody who can easily say at a party what they do and have other people be impressed. Really hard to go from that to, I used to be a lawyer and I'm not really sure what I'm doing now. And letting go of that and developing a plan for making a transition can be a really scary thing. And that's something that I love helping people with.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much for that. You know what? Just sharing for a moment my own personal experience. I left a high-powered, high-paying job in finance to become first a yoga teacher and then a writer and a DEI consultant. But it took me a while to shed not necessarily the identity, but my feelings of shame around having let go of that identity or the beliefs that I should be in that space. And I'm curious, Liz, because you are someone who left practicing the law, how long would you say it took for you to step out of that identity and into a different way of identifying yourself?
0: About five years. And I'm still working on it, I think. It was a long transition for me, probably longer than it should have been. That's one of the reasons that I wrote Life After Law and How to Leave the Law, because it, it doesn't need to take that long, I think, for lawyers. They're just certain obstacles that are common to many, many lawyers who are leaving the field, it's really challenging. Once you've gotten a foothold in something that society says, oh, we recognize you, we see you, we're going to treat you like you're cool and okay now. Once you move from that objective view of success toward something that is more personally satisfying, That takes a lot of courage. That takes a lot of bravery. And it's not something that kids, for example, are rewarded for doing as they're growing up, developing that that sense of independence, breaking away from the pack, finding your own voice. It's something that you've had to do on your own, developing all these new skills, dealing with all this new heartburn. And it is incredibly rewarding and empowering, also very scary.
1: Thank you so much. We're going to put a link to that book in the show notes. I will be buying a few copies for people I know who are pretty unhappy in their current careers. And thank you to everyone listening. And Liz, thank you so much for your time.
0: Oh, it has been such a joy being here. Thank you so much for having me. Can we move forward differently?
1: To foster greater equity, even if we don't always understand fairness, we can and should demand. Let's embrace one another, single colleagues, working mothers, people of all points of view. Can we see each other through? Wasn't that great? I got so much out of that interview. And I just find Liz's work and research fascinating. So for both of you, how has either listening to my chat with Liz or listening to this episode really changed your understanding of bias as it pertains to technology and the workplace?
3: I can't say it changed my thoughts around bias, but we actually focused a lot on privacy in the episode. And I'll just say I could not get past when Liz mentioned that when you're using your personal device, but you're on like the bandwidth or network of your company, that they can sometimes have access to everything. I think that that's another instance of me just wanting to be blissfully ignorant about the reach of technology, but understanding that you really can't turn a blind eye to it. And we as individuals should probably be more aware of what is going on with technology in the workplace and privacy is a big part of that. So I think that that piece was a little, I guess I just never thought that was not possible. I just, I guess I didn't think that it maybe was as common as it sounds like it is for companies to just if you're on their network have that access and use that access i don't know what they would be using it for necessarily but it is creepy but unless you're someone who's choosing to live completely off grid we pretty much have to accept that like our privacy is being infringed on at some point throughout probably every day So it was just a reminder of that. But yeah, I heard it in your response. You were like, wow, that is, mm -hmm." (laughs) and I felt the same way. So yeah, that privacy piece is just, it's not a feel-good topic for me.
2: (laughs) I think piggyback on that. Yes, the privacy issue, it was eye-opening. And one thing that Liz said made a lot of sense to me. And it was like, you need to ask. It's fair for you to know, how is your data being used? That's not a question that I've ever thought of on an interview to ask, but that's something that you either want to find out then, or once you're with a company, asking HR what what is happening with the data, especially if you're a woman and there there might be some apps you're being given access to through the company. I think you really need to make sure you t- do your due diligence and ask questions of your HR staff or whoever is in charge of that technology element. Maybe it's the the main IT person but it's your right to know. Even though all this stuff seems shady and secretive, it doesn't have to be. They're not openly divulging it, but you do have the right to then ask. And I think I heard something and they don't technically have to tell you. I don't recall exactly what her words were, but for me, I'm asking. Like, I'm gonna try to find out what's going on here. Let me get the details.
1: I also think about the layer of shame and secrecy because there's certain things that I would feel very comfortable asking about. Like, well, how are you gonna use this? But there's other things I don't really wanna call attention to. And I think for me, something like femtech may be one of those Things. like I don't want anyone knowing that about me or like how many steps I take or how many whatever. I mean, there's just certain things that I don't want people to know, but there's other things that I'm like, sure, happy to tell you, sit on down. Let's have a conversation about it. I don't care. And I think that's probably unique and different for each and every person. And so it is interesting to think about asking those questions and having those conversations. And it's also interesting to think about how these things are not standardized. Like Europe does have, I think Liz was saying, some guidelines around this. The United States doesn't. I do know that there have been moves to have certain legislations around different implementations of the internet and around technology, but there's no standard practice within a nation, within an organization. And so I do think it's really important that people ask these questions. And one thing that I'm hoping Listeners will do differently to your point, Zach, is ask those questions of their employers. And then also that employers maybe will be more forthcoming with employees. Because I know that if I were to go on a job interview and an employer were to tell me, like, these are the benefits that we have, and we just want you to know that these are the things that we have access to behind the scenes, I would really appreciate that. So I would vote for a lot more transparency, both on the side of employers and for employees.
2: Hey listeners, Zach James here, partner and marketing manager of the Demystifying Diversity Podcast, and I wanted to share with you some of the great things we're doing in the DEI space. Since the beginning of 2020, myself, Darylis, and our DEI team have facilitated numerous corporate trainings, engaging workshops, one-on-one coaching sessions, and so much more, both virtual and in person. To find out how you can work with us, whether you are an individual or representing an organization, school, corporation, or any other type of group seeking diversity, equity, and inclusion education, head over to DemystifyingDiversityPodcast.com backslash DEI services to send us a message or to fill out our DEI survey. Darylis is a DEI subject matter expert, having interviewed over 300 people, becoming a TEDx speaker, as well as the author of Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. Together, we can help you up-level your DEI skills to improve your productivity, profitability, and interpersonal relationships. So connect with us at demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com backslash DEI services, and get yourself a copy of Darylise's book, Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. And don't forget the workbook too. Happy learning.
1: What about each of you? Do you have any wishes or hopes for listeners?
3: I just want to say, if you have an iPhone, a while back, the update was that they now need to ask and get the user's permission to track, and you can say yes, allow, or no, I don't want you to track my my activity. Why isn't that happening (laughs) at jobs? If they're using similar capturing data and using it, it seems like there should be some buy-in and maybe it's a part of the lengthy contracts they have you sign when you sign on to the job that no one probably ever reads top to bottom. So maybe that's how that happens. I can't say anything outside of what Zach and you have already said, which is just asking those questions. And I guess just educating ourselves more because no one is really hiding this information from us, but I just think that it can seem overwhelming. And even though that is the case, clearly I haven't said that I feel overwhelmed by tech. I still think we have responsibility as individuals to understand a general sense of where the times are going in terms of technology, because it is going to impact us. And you don't want to be that person who wakes up one day and is like, I didn't know like this was allowed to happen. And it's been happening for a while. And there's really nothing you can really do about it. At that point, you want to be informed. And that takes doing some research on your own, in addition to asking those questions. So That's what I'm taking away from it. I'm like, I'm going to hop on Google, which isn't probably the best either, but I'm going to hop on Google after this and just explore what is really out there in the tech world that I have no idea is accessing my information and so on. Doing more research is my takeaway.
2: If I were to say something I would hope folks would do differently, I would speak more specifically to employers saying that go out of your way to be transparent. Tell folks exactly what's happening with data. Let let your employees know that, hey, if you're on our company Wi-Fi, we know everything you're doing. So just a heads up, if you go above and beyond to be transparent, I think folks appreciate you more. The respect is there. And you don't end up having some hairy situations where someone is upset that their data got used in a certain way or that they started getting Mailers at their house because that data went to some place where I was like, oh, you're a fan of X Y Z. We know this because the data that we were able to access through your company. Just be transparent, and then you don't have those issues on the back end. So I would put it more on on companies. Let your employees know exactly what's going on with any data that you may or may not be collecting, and how it can be used. And that way, now the employee gets to decide. All right, well, I know whenever I'm at work, I'm gonna be on my own hotspot. I'm getting off the company Wi-Fi and and I can handle my personal business. So I think transparency is key. We've
1: touched on this a little bit, but I still wanna ask the question, Azaria, I know you mentioned feeling overwhelmed by technology. Zach, you mentioned feeling pretty positive about it, but on the spectrum from cynicism to celebration, where would you say each of you falls and why? when it comes to technology and its applications?
3: I'm probably like smack dab in the middle. I think that I just saw something the other day. It was talking about the fact that AI was able to detect breast cancer in this patient four years before it was either removed or like problematic or something of that nature. So I absolutely understand that like technology is, it can be, it has been very useful to humanity. And there are, things that I probably don't even stop to think of in this moment that I benefit from because of technology. So I'm grateful for those instances, but I do think that because technology has its hands in everything, there does need to be a lot more transparency. And that's the part of me where I get overwhelmed with Technology. I'm 28, but I refuse to have TikTok because at some point I need to stop (laughs) like adding just because everything's coming my way doesn't mean I need to accept that in. And I guess that's like personal boundaries for myself. But as I'm getting older, I'm just like, I don't need to expose myself to everything out there just because it's available, because there is a part of me that feels it is really toxic for my mental health to have access to everything that technology gives me access to. Yeah, I'm in the middle because I see – I don't think we'll ever live in a world where technology is 100% great or 100% evil. Like I think it will always be somewhere in the middle because to Manir's point, there are people in this world who have bad intentions with technology. And if they get their hands on the coding and the creation of this technology, then that's what the product is going to be. But there are also probably many more people who have good intentions. But even those good intentions sometimes – turn out to have a different impact than intended. And so I just think it's the world we're living in and we do have to do research and companies should be required. Legislations should require companies to be more transparent with their employees on what the technology they're using, what impact that has, what data of the employees they're using. So I'm right in the middle on that.
2: If you've ever seen the movie Terminator, you would know that technology can go 100% evil and most likely (laughs) will. At some point, I'm definitely on the the side of celebrating technology. I've seen it evolve a lot since my high school days. And for me, it's been mainly beneficial. Uh, use another movie analogy like Star Wars. You got the force and the force can be a good thing. It can also be a bad thing. It depends on the intentions of the person wielding it. And I think technology is, is a lot in that space. Now, granted, I think overall people use it more for good than bad but sometimes bad doesn't mean you have malicious intent. It just might not have been the, the morally right thing to do with the technology you had access to. And I think you're always going to have folks making bad decisions or negative decisions regarding if it's technology or something else. You can't get rid of it, but I do think folks can prosper from technology. Folks can live longer because of technology. They can be more efficient, in some cases, just happier in general because they having access to technology. So I'm I'm all the way for it, but I do think it needs policing, and I think you got to take everything with a grain of salt. Just because someone says something is true doesn't mean it is, so do your own research, sometimes using technology to do said research, but it's a a tough situation, And, and we've gone so far. like We can't backtrack now. Technology is here. It's ingrained in our lives as these generations get older and older, and I still have folks in my family who are in their 70s and 80s who... Don't embrace it and won't. And that's cool, but that's not going to be the case 50 years from now. So I think it's a matter of being cautious with technology, not letting it consume your life, because that can also be a negative if it goes a little too deep on that end. Yeah, I'll I'll be in support of it. And there's new technologies. I can't wait till they come out and I'm able to use them. The only thing I don't like, I'll tell you this right now. I don't know if you've seen them videos. I think it's what Boston Mechanics or whatever. They got those robot dogs and people doing backflips. Those are terrifying.
3: Yeah, so I'm like, yo,
2: that technology can take a break for a little bit, because they come out with, like, new moves, like, every other week. I'm like, why is this thing doing a backflip? It's a (laughs) 300-pound robot. That's not good. So, you gotta be cautious. You gotta be cautious.
1: (laughs) I love Zach. Like you could always infuse the humor. I'm like serious, which is awesome. We've been ending each episode, bringing in some awareness around intersectionality and how that might impact things. And I would just love your thoughts on, on that, like intersectionality and how maybe it complicates or issues around technology, or maybe creates greater access or whatever. What are, what are your thoughts about that?
2: I think technology in some areas can cause some barriers and It came up in conversation with Liz. I think a a question came in about video games and stuff like that. And I was like, yeah, because technology usually has a cost, especially when it's new. It's a high cost and low income folks can't really afford it. Actually, my parents could afford it. They were just against me having video games. I did not have anything the entire time I was growing up. I think I got a Game Boy when everyone else had like a Sega Genesis and they're hooking stuff up to their TVs. My dad's not hooking nothing up to my TV. You could have this little Game Boy. But then I also knew others who didn't have that. And it didn't have a negative impact on me, or at least I didn't notice if it had a negative impact on me. But it also was an element of the the rich get richer and the poor don't. And when it comes to technology, I think it should be like, even across the board, everyone should have access and and resources in the technology space. So yeah, I I just think it it needs to be something that is equitable for folks. And I don't think it has been or traditionally it isn't. That's just one element I I would love to see change about the technology world is that right when technology is available, everyone can benefit from it versus just certain demographics.
3: Yeah, I'd agree. I think when I and this is not to say that this is the only form of intersectionality with technology, but I think instantly my mind goes to like intersectionality regarding socioeconomic status of users of technology I agree with everything Zach just said. I think of when you hear about these virtual reality worlds that can be created and you can now buy new things to add to your virtual reality world. And so again, it's just like another creation of the physical world we already live in where people will be able to have access to certain things in those spaces that others cannot because of some form of currency that one does or does not have. But I think what's scary about that is that the more we advance with technology and the more that it almost becomes required in our day-to-day lives to have some sort of exposure to technology or else we're like missing out on what's going on in the world. That's scary because that means that they're depending on people's accessibility and access and, and socioeconomic status to grant them access to this technology. They might be walking around this world with no access to something that maybe a large portion of the world does have access to and that could prevent them from having important critical information to help them with whatever it might be. I can't even think of an example right now, but I just think that technology in my mind equals more information. And so if there are people who cannot have access to that technology, it means that there are people who don't have access to that information. And that to me is, to Zach's point, not equitable. It's not fair, but it's also scary because Certain information should be accessible to everyone, and we know that's not the case. And it seems like it will steadily increase in a way that that just becomes harder for certain people to access important information.
1: I couldn't agree more. And also I wanna point out the other side of that, that there are a lot of people who maybe might not have access to an in-person brick and mortar store who were able to sell their stuff on Instagram, right? Or build a following because of technology or call out social inequities or individuals with disabilities, perhaps who maybe didn't have the same ease to physically move around, have had access to certain opportunities, et cetera, as a result of technology. So I think technology is one of those things that can really create greater inequities and can also mitigate some of the inequities that exist. And so And it really does go back to the people, the people who are using these things and how they're using them and how accessible we're making technology to folks of all identities, but particularly those whose identities may have made it so that they might not have access without the use of technology. Again, I think we could talk about this for a while and still not be done, but we'd love to hear from you if you're listening to this. So please call us, write us with your thoughts and questions. FYI, for those who do write in and call in, we give out a free copy of the book, Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity, during every Q&A episode. And the winner for today's episode is Azaria. Do you want to do the honors?
3: Yes. And congratulations to Mary Bolger, who is a newsletter subscriber.
2: Awesome. Congrats, Barry. And thank you so much to everyone who subscribes to the newsletter and calls and writes us with questions. And make sure you're following us on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. We'll be answering some of your questions on those platforms too. And of course, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for listening in more than 50 countries.
3: If you want to contact today's expert, Liz Brown, we'll put that info in the show notes as well.
2: And while you're checking out our show notes, be sure to click the link for the DemystifyingDiversityPodcast.com to subscribe to our newsletter and learn about our DEI trainings, workshops, coaching, consulting, and other DEI services.
1: Yes, the newsletter is huge. We're doing a lot more on social media this season, hashtag technology. So connect with us. Connect with Sedwick and get involved and engaged, and get your employer engaged. Or if you are an employer, Zach spoke to y'all earlier. Hopefully, this will support you in creating a more inclusive, more transparent workplace culture.
2: And as always, every episode of the Mystifying Diversity podcast is written, reported, and produced by Darylise Lyons.
1: With the invaluable assistance of Zach James, co-collaborator and marketing manager, Azaria Keys, assistant director of Sedwick, co-producer and coordination consultant, Paul Kondo, our assistant producer and editor, Stuart Cranes, production and development assistant, and Sunny Taylor, our content editor and creative collaborator.
3: The music you heard is Demystifying Diversity, an original composition, the lyrics of which were written by Darylise Lyons in collaboration with Raymond Beef tink who also created all the music and performed vocals and instrumentals.
1: Thank you again to Liz Brown and to you listening to this and Zach and Azaria, thanks as well. This was really great. Please join us next week where we'll be talking about success working from the inside out. You won't want to miss it.
3: And in the meantime, let's keep trying to make this a better, more inclusive world.